Welcome to Chandler United Methodist Church as we worship online. We are moving deeper into this series of sermons on the ways in which God forms disciples, us, how we are formed and how God works in that process. There's a phrase of scripture which has had my attention for some time and, and it does seem to have something to do with discipleship. It is the phrase, it's, a, it's an ending statement phrase. It, it tends to come at the end of a difficult teaching. When there's been something difficult to, to hear and contemplate and reflect on and incorporate, these words come, let anyone who has ears hear. And I suppose that that is a bit of a warning for you that today's topic, this sermon, is particularly difficult. Mostly because we are a self-improving lot. We, we are proud of our to-do lists and our accomplishments and our growth. And looking at life as a growth opportunity, it, it, it works for us. And we can, most of the time, identify steps, and we can take those steps, and we can improve, we can move out of our lives some things that we're not real thrilled with, and we can get over some things that seem to be a stumbling block, and we're pleased with this. It feels like life is, is moving for us. It's an accomplishment. But if we're not careful we will take this same approach in our relationship to God. We will quite easily make our relationship to God into a qualifying round of challenges and tests to be overcome. We, we look back at how much we've accomplished and we feel good about that. And we think that makes us worthy somehow for God's love, God's value, God's claim, God's touch, God's blessing. However, we talk about that. Succeed and you are in. And well, those who fail, well, they're out, I guess. There's a little problem here, a rather big, a difficult problem with accomplishment base for our relationship with God. And I'm going to tell you the story about a young man named Jason. I first met him at the Pima County Jail on a very hot morning in the late summer of 1992. His family were among the founding families of a church I served on the northwest side of Tucson as an associate pastor fresh out of seminary and I had just moved to town, just started as the associate pastor Jason was the adopted son of Larry and Marilyn, the much younger brother of Andrew and Amanda. And Jason would be celebrating his 21st birthday in Pima County Jail. His mother had called a week or 10 days before and asked if we could have a visit and having just moved there and not knowing them very well and being the youth pastor, 
this seemed like a good thing to do. And I met with her and her husband, Larry, who sat in their living room. And I was recalling their words to me as I crossed the parking lot into the visitor doors to be processed to enter into the jail as a visitor. I pushed my driver's license under the inch-thick plexiglass window to a stern guard. And when I passed through the metal detector, I had to remove my shoes, and the guard seemed to be making note without comment that my shoes had brass eyelets for the laces. It was clear to me that humor was very much unwelcome. Humor seems to communicate a relaxed state. There was no relaxation. Every move was watched with a stern and even bored officiousness. I took a seat on a bolted down line of metal chairs. I was only a, a visitor on a small errand of mercy, and yet already, just a few steps in the door, everything was suspect. My visit, my shoes, even me. And this was, no doubt, a suspicion hardened by experience. Just entering the jail felt heavy on my existence, and it made me ponder how the weight of that institution must fall upon inmates who are there day after day. It's not just the bars and the electronic security that make a place a prison, it's the waiting. And I waited. Eventually, a guard called my name, staring blankly over a clipboard into the waiting room. As I looked up, she looked down at her notes, and I think she caught movement, and she turned and spoke over her shoulder, follow me, please led me through a door and down a corridor through several lock points into a small room with what looked like a steel study carrel on this side separated by more inch-thick glass from a line of study carrels on the other side and on this side there was a phone and on that side there was a phone and on this side, there was a steel stool jutting up from the floor. Wait here, please, she said. And I did. I sat down. And it was about 10 or 11 minutes later when the door on the other side opened and Jason peeked around into the room. He saw me. He smiled shyly. He didn't know me. He sat down on the chair across the table through the glass. He picked up the phone, and I did too, and after simple introductions and an explanation of why I was there and my conveyance of his parents' birthday wishes, he cut in and said, How are Larry and Marilyn? I mean, Mom and Dad, are, are they okay? Marilyn and Larry had done a very good job of describing Jason and his mannerisms, and 
we had sat in their living room and they had shared the story of how they had adopted this boy when he was 18 months old, a silent and distant child. He could not yet walk. He was not yet talking and had long given up on crying. Marilyn had had two kids and had undergone an emergency hysterectomy after her second child, suspected ovarian cancer, turned out to be, uh, if I remember correctly, endometriosis, which meant adoption was the only course toward parenting again. And Larry and Marilyn had both come from large families and combine that with a large dose of altruism and they agreed to accept an 18-month-old child if he really needs us. And in that conversation in their living room, they recalled the social worker sat in that same living room 19 years prior. Marilyn and Larry, both young and both idealistic, swelled with the belief that love could solve anything which they acknowledged colored their hearing of the social worker's description of a little boy who really needs you, just a cute little guy. His father died in a car accident. His mother has a chronic substance abuse problem and needs to go into a treatment facility, so she has decided to give up the baby She's way too young herself. She needs to focus on getting her life straightened out. He's an active little guy. He's not quite walking. This is a baby that needs you. Those were the words they recalled the social worker speaking. The social worker then showed Marilyn a snapshot, which, as she told this story, she rose from the couch and pulled off the wall. It was a story of Jason. It was now in one of those menagerie photo frames that hung just down the hallway, just right outside the living room, down the hallway toward the bathroom. And I remember this is where Marilyn's voice changed. A cheerful voice suddenly grew more accurate, more bitter, like her neck had tightened and she was talking through her teeth. And she said, nobody mentioned fetal alcohol syndrome. I don't know what they knew back then, maybe nothing, but nobody said a thing. And by the time Jason was five, Marilyn had become an authority on fetal alcohol syndrome, FAS, to parents and teachers and social workers, therapists, and advocates who are directly familiar with its devastating effect. Marilyn spoke words which had become familiar to her because she had spoken them so often, heavy drinking, sometimes even moderate drinking during pregnancy reaches into the brain of the child and the body of the child which is forming in the womb. Sometimes the effects are minor sometimes barely noticeable, sometimes even unnoticeable, but sometimes the effects are disastrous. She said, our Jason has all the scars, 
They cut deep into his personality and his body. I was hearing those words in my head as I sat across the desk from Jason. Jason was small and slight with kind of elfish features. Marilyn had said that he had lagged behind his peers as a child. He walked late, he talked late, he read late. He had been pretty much impervious to direction or discipline or guidance. It's not so much that he was defiant, Marilyn said. It was that he was simply enslaved by the immediate moment, bound and obedient to whatever had his attention at that moment, that time. He would receive discipline, but only in passing. He, he might be checked for a second by a scolding or a moment if he got put in the timeout chair or for a few moments if he was sent to his room. But it seemed to bear no lasting impression on him. Nothing seemed to bear a lasting impact on Jason. Marilyn described her son, he is scattered. He can be enthusiastic in one moment and then suddenly bored in the next. She went on and said, most disconcerting is that he seems to have no internal moral compass. She smiled as she remembered that when he was little, it was charming because he was needy. He coveted our approval and our acceptance. But that need for approval and acceptance did not change. And soon, as he became a teenager, he began seeking that approval and acceptance from his peers with an earnestness. And it was this craving that would lead Jason to Pima County Jail and into the Arizona prison system. Behavior which had exhausted his parents in childhood turned frightening in early, early adolescence. And by the time Jason was 15, he'd run away from home for the third time and more or less for good. He had managed to find his way to Phoenix. He'd managed to find his birth mother in an apartment. He hung out, he loafed, he ate food from her table, slept in her apartment, and then over a fairly short time started to run and drink with new buddies. His birth mother had recognized this road she was still on it herself. And she loved the boy enough to kick Jason out of her apartment, told him to go home, be with people who could help him go a different way. Marilyn told me that a shocking percentage of children with fetal alcohol syndrome will end up as adults in prison. Marilyn and Larry told me that they still loved Jason very much, but had come to accept the hard truth that they could not have heard when they were young. 
And that truth was that their love, unbounded and powerful as it might be, their love could not conquer everything. They had been so sure that parenting with consistency and unqualified love would reach in and reshape and fill in his brokenness and heal this little boy's scars. That had not been the case. And after he left his birth mother's apartment, Jason came back to Tucson for a couple of weeks, stayed in the home with Larry and Marilyn, and then he stole Larry's credit cards and ran off again, moved in with a couple of his buddies. Larry and Marilyn canceled the credit cards and heard from Jason every once in a while, every few months. He usually called when he was back on the streets and hungry. They begged him to come home less insistently as time wore on. And finally they stopped begging. Not that their love for Jason was less. They simply hoped for less. Jason had always ached to have friends, but his oddness, even as a small child, usually led him to the worst of companions. In, and in this company of last resort, eager to be approved, and with a wandering compass of what is right and wrong, Jason stumbled one misstep at a time deeper into trouble. He and his friends went shoplifting, and it was Jason who got left behind and caught. And he became acquainted with the legal system first time. Same story a year later on stealing car radios with his friends. And then not long after that, it was Jason who got caught stealing cars and stumbled would be the right word to describe Jason's descent. I don't believe anymore that Jason was immoral as much as I believe that he was innocently amoral. He was always the kid who just went along always the kid seeking approval, wanting to fit in, wanting to be accepted, the kid who happened to be there. And invariably, when his friends perceived something was wrong and ran, Jason would not perceive anything wrong. He was waiting for his friends to lead, and he would be the kid who got caught. He had been only one of three alleged perpetrators. He was the one who was apprehended after they robbed a gas station in Marana. And when the attendant at the gas station responded to their demand by pulling a gun, the other two friends had dashed out the door into the car and roared off leaving Jason to get away in the only way possible, on foot, which he did at a full clip, 
running down the shoulder of the road, following where his friends had gone in the car. The police officers responding to the call spotted him running down the road toward them as they were driving toward the gas station. It was armed robbery, his third felony, and Jason was just turning 21 on the day that I met him. And Jason was going to spend much of his adult life in prison. As we talked and as we worked to become acquaintances, it became clear that he did understand what it all meant. He, he did understand what a long time meant. It became clear that he could comprehend something of the impending humanities and humiliations of incarceration. His imagination was able to grasp the future not firmly enough to have done anything much differently, but firmly enough in this moment to be afraid. The chaplain has Bible studies, he said, looking up at me with hopeful eyes. I think he was offering a subject that he guessed would please me. I go every week. We read out loud. I'm going to keep it up. Would you tell Marilyn and Larry that I'm going to Bible study with the chaplain? Be sure you tell them. Mom and Dad had become Marilyn and Larry when Jason found his birth mother. And I have to admit, I, I found it hard to carry on this conversation, sharing bits of news from church about kids that he might have known in the youth program. If I spoke, Jason listened rather vacantly, and for his part, he had little to say, mostly news about jail rules, of when he could listen to the radio, when he couldn't. He talked about the meal they had for dinner the evening before, how he gets along with his fellow inmates, he tried to recall previous birthdays when he had opened gifts with surprise and celebration. He said he wished he could have his boombox and his tapes. He wished for some clothes that he had left at the home of a friend, the apartment of a buddy. Marilyn and Larry had faithfully visited through the trial, and now, as Jason awaited sentencing, it became devastating for them. And they had asked me to go for them on his birthday. Every year for years to come, there would be gifts on his birthday. But what do you give a boy in prison for his 21st birthday? And what would you give a man in prison on his 31st birthday? And what would you give a middle-aged man in prison on his birthday when he turned 41? What would come 
of Jason and what will come of Jason when he finally got out, a man well into his middle years, a man with fetal alcohol syndrome. Marilyn had brightly told me that some fetal alcohol syndrome kids make it. And then her voice dropped and she said she no longer dared to hope that Jason might fall into that number. Sitting across the stool from me, or sitting across the table from me on a steel stool, Jason seemed a reminder that not all things can be fixed. All the love that Marilyn and Larry had poured into him, maybe it kept him out of jail as long as it did. But it was not enough. Jason was Jason, and Jason would continue to be Jason. He was the emblem of a terrible truth that we fear more than evil. We fear more than even death. The terrible truth is that our love will not, cannot conquer all. Not in this life. I, I once struggled mightily to hold on to that ideal that love, faithful enough love, deep enough love, tireless enough love, bottomless enough love, that love would always win out. And now I sat on a steel stool across a desk looking through an inch of plexiglass at what looked like love's loss. All of a sudden, Jason brightened. Uncle Phil sent me a present. I asked him, Who, who's Uncle Phil? My birth father's brother. He lives up in Montana. It's up north. It's a wolf up north. And then, seeming to quote from a letter that had come announcing the gift, which he had read and I'm sure reread, Jason said, some biologists up north are trying to bring timber wolves back. There haven't been many wolves up there for years. If you make a donation, they name a wolf after you. Uncle Phil makes pretty good money selling jet skis. He made a donation, and my wolf has a tag in its ear that says my name. Jason seemed to get a little wistful after that. He said, Every night in my bed, I think about the wolf. Sometimes I have seen him moving in the woods, in my mind. I saw a timber wolf on TV once. Jason hesitated, and he looked toward the door behind me and then back at me. He said, sometimes it's like I'm inside him like I can see what he sees. 
Sometimes I move through the woods with him at night. I see white-tailed deer and snowshoe rabbits, and I run and I run through the trees. Last night, it was like I was looking across a lake, lit by the moon, beautiful water as far as I could see. I stepped into the bright, hot light of the parking lot. Jason's image of transcendence had filled my mind. Jason in his wolf. Jason running through the woods. Jason out of prison. Jason no longer in the prison of his fetal alcohol syndrome. Jason, free of it all. There are a lot of people like Jason who might be enthralled by the idea of faithful living, might be excited by the idea of a God who loves them for a moment, but then, of course, are easily distracted and move on to other things and are pulled this way and that way. There's a lot of people like Jason who will never self-improve to be good enough in whatever sense our religious thinking wants us to be good enough. Jason helps me remember some things about myself, ways that I would like to change, ways that I am not perfect, ways that I am easily distracted. My own need for a grace larger than human grace. The truth of the matter is some broken things cannot be fixed. There are people who cannot be healed in this world, not by love, not by hard work, not by steady discipline, not by power over. We can say a lot of words, but words don't change facts that we don't like. Some cancer patients will get better. Other cancer patients will not. Some kids subject to the effects of fetal alcohol syndrome make it. Some will not. Some wounded souls will find a way to be healed. Some will go to their graves pulled into the earth by a brokenness which no human love could ever mend. Within our walls of human time, confined by the limitations of human existence, hemmed in by the limits of our love and our understanding, the truth that we hate to know is that all will not be well here. Marilyn and Larry had finally come to realize this difficult truth. And Marilyn said, and I share her hope, she said, I hope on the other side of this life, 
there is another much longer stretch of truth in which Jason will be well. Our text today points us to that very idea, to, to those vast expanses of time in which we can trust there to be a greater loving, a deeper knowing, a more profound understanding that can absorb our brokenness and heal us where we are wounded. And I think we come here to worship because we need, we need on a soul level, we need to catch a glimpse of this deeperness. We need to learn to trust this. And it's the mystery of the kingdom of God that there is a place where it all gets fixed, a place where there is no fetal alcohol syndrome, there is no cancer, there is no Parkinson's, there's no prison system. There is a place where former things have passed away and tears have long been wiped away. A place where there is only the calming peace of up north, seen through the eyes of a wolf, tasting the air, breathing deeply as we run along a moonlit lakeshore beside a pure expanse of clear water which never seems to end. May the Spirit of our God, whom we know in the person of Jesus, go before you to show you your way, behind you to nudge you forward when you're too frightened to move, above you to watch over you, beside you to be sometimes the only friend you have in this world, and within you that you might know peace. Be always in his peace.